0: Welcome to episode 96, Lifting LGBTQIA Voices of Color, Racism Among Gender and Sexual Minorities, featuring Dr. Frank Sanchez, Luna Melbro MS, and Jasmine Nicola Creighton. By Clearly Clinical, Learn, Grow, Shine. Hello to our listeners. Today, I am honored to be spending time um, with three individuals that are here to shed some light on the intersectionality between um, racism, discrimination, and the LGBTQIA community. Um, In no particular order, I would really like to introduce to you Dr. Frank Sanchez. Dr. Sanchez is a licensed clinical psychologist who works as a vice president of clinical compliance at the Holman Group. And he also has a private practice in Porter Ranch in Valencia, California. I would also like to introduce to you Jasmine Creighton. She is the senior manager of strategic partnerships at the Asian Pacific AIDS intervention team in Los Angeles and a board member of the City of Los Angeles Transgender Advisory Council. I want to add in a quick post-production disclaimer. We had difficulty during the recording with Jasmine's microphone, so you might notice that the audio quality is lower than the other two guests Thank you for your grace and patience. And last but not least, I'd like to introduce Luna Malbro. She has her master's in social work and facilitates education and training on cultural humility, anti-racism, equity, and implicit bias to organizations and communities. Um, Thank you to the three of you for being here today. So I would like to first um, ask you um, to tell us a little bit more about yourself. Um, Luna, why don't you start? Tell us a little bit about your background and how you came to have this particular specialization and do this work. Yeah,
1: happy to. So um, I always say that I grew up in uh, rural Louisiana because that's really important to my story Um, and um, saw pretty quickly through a program in high school how, how different the education I was getting and, and my surrounding area was to the experience I had in Portland, Oregon when I was there for an art school for a few months. Shoot forward and um, ended up getting my MSW. I really wanted to focus um, not only as a clinician, but also in international social welfare with a focus on supporting individuals with trauma. I worked at a um, residential facility in san francisco for a few years and then started uh moving into program management and then from there moved into uh facilitating and doing anti-bias trainings with the anti-defamation league currently i co-founded um Soul Bird consulting with my partner sarah buffy and the focus is around um, helping people understand the effects of trauma and how healing happens in relationship and also helping people understand uh, the approach of cultural humility and exploring implicit bias and um, anti-racism. So the cultural humility work is what I do with Sober Consulting, but we primarily work with mental health professionals and organizations and people who work with um,
0: a lot of different populations. So. That's my background. Thank you, Luna. Thank you for joining us. And Jasmine, I'm going to turn to you. Why don't you tell us a little bit more about yourself?
2: Thank you for having me. Um, my name is Jasmine. name Jasmine Creighton. I'm a Black trans femme, and my is uh, gender Fierce. And uh, I came into this work uh, through entertainment. I am an actor and a performance artist, and I started out in the clubs dancing and performing in trans nightclubs and all over Los Angeles, actually all over the world. And um, I went to school a little bit for uh, human services. And uh, from there, I was introduced into nonprofits through a program that a dear girlfriend of mine was running called the Heart Program, which was a program specifically designed for trans women and empowerment group. And through that group, um, we learned about, uh, a plethora of, of things, you know, HIV and how it can, how it affects, uh, trans women. We learned about a little bit about our mental health and some of the traumas that we experience on a day to day basis. And we were learning solely how to support each other in that process. And through that, I, uh, through that process, I was asked if I was interested in a job. They gave me a job. I became a peer educator, and from there they helped develop my, uh, you know, my voice in community. And so, you know, I oftentimes find myself working uh, with the marginalized. You know, the specific trans women who are experiencing uh, some sort of mental uh, trauma, or uh, homelessness, or you know, family, uh, you know, domestic abuse. So. My my job has led to uh, collaborating with different organizations and institutions to provide um, affirming and and somewhat safe um, services, specifically trans. Uh, And I say that because we often get lumped up in this LGBTQ uh, narrative and our voices are not heard. They're not amplified. And they're not, um, they can't be fully supported because we haven't been able to exercise in, in, uh, in, a, in the same sort of way our souls, siblings have been able to, in the, you know, other spectrums of, you know, LGBTQ um, spectrum. And also, um, I'm in a new film that I want to suggest that everyone watch. I think it's mandatory that people see it. It's called Disclosure um because um it really talks about how we have been um viewed uh from uh viewed in um oh it's another word i want to use by kinth right now but how we've been viewed uh throughout history right and how our voices um have been skewed and only shown from one particular lens and I think it's very important, that, um, especially on this particular uh, panel, that everyone that's listening in take the time to um, to look at that panel. No. But that's me in a nutshell, and I'm still here. And my intention today is to uh, be a voice of um, reason, be a voice of change, and be a voice of uh, hope.
0: Wonderful. Thank you, Jasmine. I really appreciate you joining us. And Dr. Sanchez, why don't you tell us a little bit more about you? So
3: I am uh, now a 50-year-old gay man, and I am married to a male. We are raising a 12-year-old boy. And uh, we. my journey began as a gay man um, filled with a lot of shame and through that, I've gone through the process of um, of my own alcohol and drug abuse and then came out of that the other side. It wasn't until my healing happened that I discovered I couldn't continue to do the work that I was doing previously and wanted to help and heal other people who were suffering through addiction and also who had been struggling with the um, with shame as individuals. And so a lot of my work has been with addiction. Um, I've worked at AIDS Project Los Angeles. I worked at a program called LA Shanti, um, which is no longer around, but it was supporting gay, lesbian, bisexual, transgender individuals in Los Angeles. And um, More recently, I've been working in addiction, so addiction treating adolescents and also treating young adults. I have a private practice, and in my private practice, I am in a suburbia Los Angeles, and in that community, I do see a lot of young transgender people, um, and those individuals oftentimes are suffering with gender dysphoria, uh, which is... Uh, something that um, that I, I think is yeah, occurs a lot with transgender. and I um, in this conversation, I would like to open that up and and have um, uh, just an open conversation of what do we do? how do we how do we help and support individuals um, who are uh, suffering with this? I I want to um, also discuss the way that uh, the LGBTQ community um, has had limited access to uh, mental health services, to addiction treatment, um, to medical services, and to education. Uh, I think um, minorities who are LGBTQ, as well as um, people of color, their access is limited in all of these areas. And um, the, the amount of support or assistance that they can get to fully realize who they are has been limited. So we, I think as, a, as, a, as people in the helping profession, we need to recognize this and try to, to um, support individuals in becoming their fullest potential.
0: Thank you. Thank you, Dr. Sanchez. So, um, Before I hear more from you, I want to share some statistics with our listeners. These are just some quick pieces of information that I think we need to hold in our minds and in our hearts as we listen to what these three professionals have to say. Um, LGBTQ people of color are at least twice as likely as white LGBTQ people to say that they have been personally discriminated against because they are LGBTQ when applying for jobs and when interacting with police and six times more likely to say they have avoided calling the police due to concern for anti-LGBTQ discrimination compared with white LGBTQ people, um, which report just 5%. A study in the US Department of Housing and Urban Development found one in five Asian and Pacific Islanders has experienced discrimination in the rental and home buying process. Rates are likely higher among LGBTQ Asian and Pacific Islander people due to lack of federal non-discrimination protections based on sexual orientation and gender identity black transgender people have an extremely high unemployment rate at 26% two times the rate of the overall transgender sample and four times the rate of the general population 41% of black respondents said they've experienced homelessness at some point in their lives more than five times the rate of the US general population Um, and even when looking less at statistics and zooming out and just looking at culture in general. Um, When interviewed on gay dating apps, Users on things like Grindr um, have reported seeing phrases like no black, no Asian in comments, um, and there have been anti-racist campaigns to tackle some of these messages of hate. Um, this particular interview, we're going to be looking at, the again, the intersection between um, LGBTQ discrimination and then uh, racism at large against all people of color, um, discrimination. Excuse me, discrimination in the United States. The experience of lesbian, gay, bisexual, transgender, and queer American study, which was written up in 2018, excuse me, 2019, found that experiences of interpersonal discrimination were common for LGBTQ adults, including slurs at 57%, microaggressions at 53%, sexual harassment 51%, violence 51%, and harassment uh, regarding bathroom use at 34%. More than one in six LGBTQ LGBTQ adults also reported avoiding healthcare due to anticipated discrimination, including 22% of transgender adults, while 16% of LGBTQ adults reported discrimination in healthcare encounters. Um, LGBTQ racial and ethnic minorities had statistically significantly higher um, odds than whites in reporting discrimination based on their uh, LGBTQ identity when applying for jobs, when trying to vote or participate in politics and interacting with the legal system. I could keep going. I have paragraphs here. But the bottom line is we have two populations that are marginalized and we're talking about when those things overlap and what's that, that's like in the real world. So I'm just going to open it up to the three of you who would like to start and kind of commenting on any of those statistics or sharing sharing your thoughts.
2: I just want to say it's no blacks, no fats, and no fins as well. Yeah, because oftentimes um, you know, we don't get we don't get a chance to really talk about uh, you know how uh, femininity is a is not is not looked upon as something uh, to be honored and cherished in the LGBT community, and um, we get you know feminine people oftentimes get really pushed out, really uh, marginalized, and there is no space even in the in in the in the com- community, quote unquote, for us to to, to to thrive, right, or to flourish. So we tend to, um, I often find that, you know, we find our voices because we're trying to assimilate to something that is not, um, is not honoring us and has no desire to uplift us. But for some reason we're, uh, you know, I'm just, I should say me personally, but I noticed even, you know, amongst the community, we're always reaching for something that's outside of us and it's not supporting us. So it's harming us. And then we wind up harming ourselves.
1: Yeah. um, I'm I'm sitting with what Jasmine said and I'm thinking about um, just, just thinking about the audience that listens to this. I feel like the, experiences of uh the lgbtqia community are so diverse there's so many different dynamics even within each different population from you know thinking about the trans experience the to the lesbian to the pansexual to then you know questioning it, it, asexual it's all so vastly different and when you uh layer that with the experiences of uh, being a person of color, being black, indigenous, Asian, um, all Latinx, all of that is so layered. Um, the one thing that I, that I always say, the one thing that I always say is that you can never be culturally competent in, in an identity outside of your own, in an experience outside of your own. And so what I'd like to lift up is just humility and um, how do we practice more humility and understanding? I may not understand all the dynamics at play, um, but but it's, there's a, an element of uh, inquisitive and reach research that we all have to do, and also being able to name that there's some things that I can I can read, but I will not understand those dynamics. So how how do you support people? in that. And um, I just want to offer that just b- before we even get into the conversation that I'm just, I'm, I'm feeling overwhelmed because I myself am a queer woman. I'm married to a woman. I'm divorcing a woman. <laughs> so that th- there's an experience even uh, that I feel from my own experience um, of going through the family building process and getting halfway through the family building process and creating an embryo and trying to get support from medical professionals, professionals and uh, mental health professionals. But there was no one who could even begin to hold space for that process because their process of understanding was heteronormative child rearing and heteronormative aspects of creating and building a family. So I lift that up to just think about all the different dynamics at play. I shared before um, you Beth, that a lot of times when we think about um, LGBTQIA issues, we forget about uh, family issues on top of that, of parenting and fertility and all of those things can be experiences uh, and issues and, things to explore for trans folks, for LGBTQ folks. Uh, So I just want to lift that up that this is such a broad umbrella um, and that there's so much nuance to unpack that we I know I won't be able to get to, but I just want to name
0: and i'm glad luna you bring that up and i and i think that that's an important point jasmine mentioned it as well as a society we lump all of these things together when they're all extremely unique and that this umbrella and a one hour conversation does not make somebody culturally competent so, you know we can you like and and i think collectively we're recognizing that that term is just antiquated what we're talking about is cultural humility and recognizing that we do not know the lived experience of another person even if we could read a lot of books about it even if we could go to a lot of continuing ed and and having the appreciation and the curiosity and the flexibility to be open to that and i think what's special about the conversation we're having is we have three people coming from very different backgrounds very different lived experiences and it is within that diversity that this is a very phenomenon we're discussing you know that you all have you have yes, perhaps this representative voice that's been thrust upon you by the majority community of speak for all of the gay people, speak for all of the trans people, what do all of you think? And that really what we're talking about is a lived and clinical experience of three people that are in front of me, not and and I should note for our listeners, I can see them. This is a video, so I could see them and I could see their faces. Um, and that that you, you cannot speak for the entire community at large, and you can only speak for your personal perspective on it. Um, Dr. Sanchez, I can see you there nodding. Um, please, I'd love to hear from you.
3: Yeah, I like the idea of speaking to um, my own lived experience because that's what I have the most knowledge about. Um, in my clinical work, I, I, I try to be there with the individual um, coming from exactly where they're at. And um, and I try to understand it through my own experience oftentimes, and that may, may not be correct. And so I always have to keep an open ear um, to what are they saying and does my lived experience match that or does it not match that? And um, I, I constantly have to be open uh, to a new suggestion or a new thought of what the person's experience may be. And I, I do want to say um, working in insurance, uh, which is another hat that I wear, I, I am also we're responsible for finding providers for individuals. And it's challenging to find an ethnically diverse um, uh, clinicians available to treat individuals who, who are minorities, who are LGBTQ. And I, I would hope that we have more clinicians joining our forces to support individuals um, who come from these diverse backgrounds. Um, for myself, I, I felt as, as a gay person um, on this journey suffering through shame and suffering through addiction, I felt like I could give back to a lot of people Um, and I wanted to, to be able to do that. But now in this process, when I look at LGBTQIA, I see, you know, my experience is very limited. And I only know what it's like for a Hispanic person, um, who's gone through different forms of discrimination to, um, and to also have family discrimination to... Um, I, I can understand my perspective, but I don't understand a, a transgender person's perspective of what their family life is like and what their cultural differences are. <clears throat> or a bisexual man who <clears throat> might be coming from a Armenian background, um, that, that family experience is very different i understand the rejection um, but i don't understand the family dynamics that they're coming from and that that cause them to be um, to not share themselves fully uh, in their families or in their communities
2: i i i would uh, like to uh, thank you that yeah that's that's so true but you know, I always think, even though I may not know you, um, I can create space for you, right? I can welcome you in and we can have real dialogue and conversation. And I know I won't get all the information I need in one setting, but I can keep, you know, inviting you back so we can continue to explore. Because some of the best therapists I have have been one of my favorite therapists that I haven't really you know, guided me to where I am now was a, a Jewish white uh, lesbian woman who like to go camping. You know, <laughs> uh, up in Oregon somewhere. But like she, she listened to me and she challenged me, right? And and I got a chance to explore who I who I, who I was in that moment with her and find my voice through that process. So even though she may not know very much about Being a black, trans, you know, anything about being black, being trans, you know, identified and, uh, you know, navigating the world as such. Right. She can still provide a space and a place where I can explore who I am in that process. And so because she because the door was open to me and she made provisions for me because there was no money I I could not afford to pay. So I had to go to the center, had to go to the gay and lesbian center, so I could access whatever services that were available available to me at that moment. So I could at least, um, at least, you know, have that 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 short period of time, that six weeks, just to exercise that muscle. And then they said, "Look, after a period of time, you could come back and access it again." And I did that until like I felt like I would. I was, you know, sturdy enough where I can make different moves and different, you know, stand in a different position. But to, you know, to the day, it's still needed because I'm finding, um, you know, support in that arena, you know, on a daily basis, because I'm finding that even working within the community, um, I get re-traumatized from, from both, you know, experiences and they come on strong, you know, because they're coming from, you know, some people are literally that I'm working with are literally coming from the street. And they, you know, they have their um, you know, their past traumas, their their uh their their, their drug abuse, um, the drug use and abuse of it, you know, everything is showing up at the door and they want your service and they need your help, right? And they want to be supported and guided and they want to live their dream. And you uh you're like, okay, let's let's pick a couple of things we work at. Let's get your house, right? Let's do the basic thing. And then we can if you if we can build a trusting relationship just a little bit, because you haven't trusted people in a long time. You probably haven't trusted nobody forever. And I'm asking you to start trusting and believing in this process, even though you've been doing it with other people. I'm asking you to do it with me. And that's where the challenge lies is like building this trust and this relationship with, um, with the individual.
0: Jasmine, you just talked and touched upon something that I want to inquire about with the three of you. What we're talking about here fundamentally is trauma. We're talking about sexual and gender trauma. We're talking about racial trauma, um, This is something I know the three of you have worked in extensively um, and simply by your membership in these communities couldn't basically the likelihood of you avoiding it yourselves would be very, very low. Um, Tell me what comes up for you when I talk about the word specifically for trauma and, again, the intersectionality of these two communities that are both independently marginalized and then you basically just duplicate the trauma from one in a different way?
1: I'd say the thing that uh, comes up for me first when I think about trauma is uh, how we understand it and define it as a society. Um, And one thing that... we say is like trauma is not just what was done to you is what, what, what was done to you did to you. Um, but I, the thing that I wanna lift up around uh, these lived identities and these lived experiences is that um, you, you, we, we may experience like individual traumas, um, but there's also the compounding adverse stressor of just daily being in a body or being in an identity where you're not you're not seen as human, where you're not welcome, where you're not um, you, where you're not allowed to be yourself, and so I think so often clinicians focus on like a trauma, but there's still so much work and understanding that needs to be done in supporting people who are going through the ongoing daily trauma of just being who they are. And um, I I understand that healing happens in relationships, but I also understand that work needs to be done to make relationships safe. So I'll just throw that out there.
3: Yeah, when I think of trauma, I oftentimes think of physical violence. I think of the uh, cultural violence, the um, religious undertones, the religious violence that happens. And um, for individuals, I think being born into this culture and society, we do have our cultural unconscious that we have a lot of cultural trauma that has happened and that occurs regularly. Um, When you're a child sitting in a church and hearing that it's wrong to have sex with another man and that you're going to go to hell for that, um, that has an impact. And that tells you you're you're not okay. Um, And I think that there's a lot of cultural and conscious messages that we hear as young people that we hear growing up and the experience or the the result of that trauma is an experience of shame that idea that we are not okay as we are that we are not as good as everybody else that there's something defective or wrong with who we are and i think that um it's important to recognize that those cultural messages are there, and they affect us, they impact us. And um, we, we not only have to fight um, with society about the um, discrimination that occurs, but we also have to fight with that uh, cultural unconscious that those messages are just there and we have to fight ourselves to get those, push those away, to push those out of us and to be happy with who we are and to not have the ability to access mental health services or medical care um, for individuals suffering with this type of discrimination and these types of messages. It's, it's how, how does that person, how is that person able to fulfill who they truly are and to reach their life's purpose um, without getting that help that they need. So I I just think, when I think of trauma, there's so many underlying messages that come at us that that we have to be prepared to fight against. I
2: feel that anyone
3: that um, is working
2: uh, with uh, LGBT folks, um, especially clinicians, um, in their office, if they're you know inviting people in, or if they have like a one-shooter, like, I think they should even ask the client, do you know what trauma is? like. You know, do you know what trauma is and how it shows up? Because sometimes people don't know they're in a traumatic, ex- they're, they're in the middle of a traumatic experience. I tell my clients every day, I'm like, sleeping so on the street, I mean, that's a traumatic experience. You want to, I know you want to go you know, here, but you know there's some steps to getting to you know where you want to go you've been you've been traumatized this whole time you know just the experience of being uh, uh, out in the world with nowhere to go right and trying to you know, where every, you know a lot of the folks i'm working with are in survival mode and even when once i move them out of the you know you're off the street and you're in this bridge housing the in the bridge housing, you got to figure out how you got to navigate with stranger with trauma, you, you know, and you're like, okay, how and it got to a point in, in some of the services where they stopped helping people after they, um, I think it's 18 to 24. That's what they're calling you. So there's funding for that, right? The counseling, there's they're always creating funding. We're helping, we're helping, but just because after 24, And, you know, it appears that you should be at a certain space or a certain place in your mindset. That's not the truth of the matter. Actually, you to me, it's 18 to 16 to 29. Like, you're still in this mindset. Like, you don't really know how to navigate unless you have support, unless you have equity, you know, some financial support, mom and dad, you know, someone to back you You know, when you know some kind of backing. If you don't have anything backing you, it it's it's a free for all. Like you're you're grabbing and pulling and holding on to like thin air. Because for one, you may not have the education to navigate, right? So that means you won't have access to certain jobs. You can't compete on that certain level, right? So you will have to take a you know some basic job or do. You know you know survival survival work right whatever that looks like um, no education no school so if you, oftentimes if you you won't be able to afford to live any place on your own so you will have to access public service right that means general relief uh, hopefully you can get in Social security you might not even qualify for that and if you do qualify for that you won't get it right away because there's a lot of lot of strain a lot of like red tape you have to go through. So you're like in this suffering stage and you don't even know you're you're suffering, you're breaking down. Right. And you're still trying to, um, stay face. And that happens a lot in our community. Cause we, you know, we, we want, we want this dream, right. That everyone else is, uh, it seems attainable, but like at the end of the day, like, it becomes a nightmare chasing after it, right? And you and we're just, it, you know, that's why we die young, and that's why people destroy, you know, black trans bodies because for one, they don't care about them. Two, we all have the ability to be uh, anti anti black. I can't say racist, but we can definitely be anti black, and that shows up in you might like the culture, but you don't like the people, right? So. When no one really likes you, you're like, who am I? Who, who's working with me? Who's on my team? Then you start looking at yourself. Do I really like myself? And then you, you know, this defense mechanism is built up in you. And it, you know, people are like, I don't know what to do. My heart, I'm bleeding. I'm bleeding for you. It's like, well, listen for a minute and let me, you know, and give me some ideas, right? Give me some other ideas because I'm mad. I'm caught up in the middle of my trauma and I don't know what to do. You know what I tell my girls? I'm like, go get a snack, go upstairs, and chill out for now. You don't have to make any decisions right now. You don't have to do nothing. But I don't want you to leave the house. I don't want you to leave today. We don't have to figure it out. I could be, you know, enemy number one right now because you may not like what I'm having to say. But I don't want you to go. I want you to give yourself a chance, right? I think at some point we want to, we want to believe there's someone else, there's someone on our side because mom and dad threw us away. The family don't want anything to do. With it. Nobody, you know, we don't, we don't, the system, we don't know how the system works. No one knows how to navigate, right? You hear that it's working for some people, but how's it going to work for me? Right. And when you, when it's not working, then you're just grabbing it. You're just grabbing and holding up. It's thin air. And then you get exhausted. And then we math, sex. All of it starts to make sense to you because it numbs the trauma and it numbs the feeling. But you're creating new trauma. Trauma that you're not familiar with.
1: Yeah. I I just want to add to um what I an aspect of what I heard Dr. Sanchez and Jasmine both talk about is like how much we internalize things and how and how much that just builds and builds and adds on to the trauma and uh I, I love what you said Jasmine I mean I I love that you said it. I don't love the truth of it, but that anybody can be anti-black and you can be a black person with anti-black sentiment. you could be a black person who has internalized messages um, that blackness is not okay And so um, you might I, I, if the audience for this if you know we're talking to mental health, professionals and practitioners, I'm assuming that a majority of the people listening to this are white cis women, because that's the nature of the field. And so you might find yourself thinking, well, how do I support someone who has an identity outside of me? And I'm, I might be noticing, one, you may not even notice that they're anti-Black. You might be like, yeah, that's a that's a great way of thinking about things, but I hope you can notice when people have internalized negative messages um, around their identities. It's very hard to be that person outside of that lived experience to say, oh no, you should love your blackness. What you can do is connect them to other people in their community or other examples or other resources from films, right? Like. Jasmine throughout to um, even I would even say influencers are people cause there because there are so many voices within this umbrella, within this community that are speaking to that self-love. And so I would I would ask everybody to look for those voices to highlight, to share. So you have a toolkit of resources. So where you say, Well, okay, I may not be um, and a lot next trans youth, but here's this person who's speaking to this and speaking truth to power of that. Did you hear that stuff? Did you, I, I like Jamila Reddy personally. Um, they use, uh, they identify as non-binary, uh, black young person who speaks a lot about self-love and that has been very helpful for me. So even if you're not that person or you may not feel, competent, or even have enough understanding to speak on that, there are people and sources and groups and communities that you can help support people to find. And so I just want to throw that out there.
0: Luna, as you're talking about that, it brings back um, something that LJ Lumpkin in our last interview had also brought up that clinicians need to do the work in a lot of ways outside a session. But what you just pointed to, which is like we need to connect people with resources. And if we don't have that lived experience and we're outside of that community, and even if we were necessarily within it, doesn't mean that we know everything of someone else's lived experience. We need to be willing to show up and do the work, make the calls, and say, okay, how do I connect this person with other people that can lift them up and say, yes, I've been there too. And Jasmine, I can see the look on your face. Please tell me what you're thinking as you're nodding.
2: Yeah, that's that's my gig. Like, that's why I'm here. Like, so I can hear, so I can can connect, right? And say, look, this person, I believe you can work with them. I believe that you you just take the time and remain open to this process, that you can gather something that can continue on your journey. That's the only way it really works. Like, you gotta know that there's somebody that is willing to support us, right? In, 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 aspects of our lives and willing to access that knowledge. Cause we're coming to you cause we're figuring you're walking like in encyclopedia. You're, you're, you know, you have these letters and this information. You got this office, like, help me, right? Help me, help me. But at the end of the day, it's like, you know, I realized like, the purpose, you know, of the clinician is to help you help yourself, right? So, um, you know, with that, you know, I believe the clinician has to get armed with information, right? And come, like um, Luna was saying, with their toolbox full uh, of information and things to, like, oh, read this book, go to this group, try this out. And then when they come back, or if they come back, right, how did it go? Tell me what you learned. What did you hear? What stood out for you? Did you go? Did you check out that movie I told you? You know, give them some stuff to work with, right? But that requires us to do our own work. That's, you know, that's what happens. It's like, and that's why I come so I can develop my voice, right? So I can have different. I can have different language, different words I get to use and add to my vocabulary. I want to be with the clinician. I want to be with the the thinkers and the people that are, you know, educated in this field to like help me grow. So I'm on um, I'm always beaten up on myself or you know, my clients. And I can I can um what do you call it? Uh, send them out into the in the universe knowing that there are some people out there doing the work. Because people are gonna get people are going to do exactly what they want to do, right? And I'm not trying to stop you from doing what you want to do. But I do want to support you in thinking and being curious about other aspects of yourself, right? I want you to think. I know you want this, but look at it like this: like open, like open your 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 peripheral vision a little bit and see that you can actually obtain or see or do more than you you limit yourself to. And that that that's the great thing about like where I sit in my life right now, like. I was so stuck on being this, right? And my identity was wrapped up in my art. So life and the universe took me on a journey and said, you know what? You're limiting yourself. I'm, you know, I'm going to show you something else. But I had to go in, a, you know, a different door. And because I went in a different door, I got more out of it, right? I got more, you know, because I came into your office and I was willing to like to, to fight myself and hash it out and curse and scream and be uncomfortable in the process, right? And bring all my trauma that I was dealing with at that moment with me into your office. It got me to my next plateau. Is the trauma still there? Yes. It, you know, is some of my crazy thinking still there? Yes. But it, I don't act on it the same way. I believe people always say, "I'm gonna." I'm telling you the truth. Well, I say, look. Your truth is evolving because what might have worked for you a couple of years ago may not be the same thing that's working for you today. And people are like, oh, okay, maybe, maybe, maybe. I was like, just stay with the maybe and we'll see where we can go from here. Just be open to the possibility of, of something new and different about you in this situation. And then we'll talk about it later. We'll see where you are later. But
0: stick around for yourself. Dr. Sanchez, I can see you nodding as Jasmine was talking. What were you thinking about?
3: Well, I I think uh, Jasmine is is spot on in a lot of uh, what she's talking about. I think uh, that that our clients, um, if they can come back to us again and again, then um, their minds are begin to open and they can begin to experience uh, real change and they can begin to acknowledge what is really at the crux of what the issues are um and through that they begin to develop tools and luna had also mentioned that you you have to educate yourself you have to you have to learn more want to understand more and i think as a clinician um one one thing that people get with uh, getting services from a therapist is you get the years of education and, and knowledge that comes with being a clinician. And so as a clinician, the more that you can continue to develop and expand your toolbox, uh, the better that you're going to be for your, the clients that you're serving and um, as we do that we're able to give our clients more tools they get more tools to use because our toolbox is expanded and when we're giving them tools we've all been in situations where or i don't know from personal experience myself being in therapy i've been in therapy with people who it feels like this is their paycheck and then i've been with clinicians who They care about me and they they're on this journey and on this path with me and I want to be the clinician that I'm on the journey and on the path with my clients they aren't just a paycheck they I I want I want to be with them in their healing and I want to give them and support them in creating the toolbox that's going to work for them for years to come. So yeah, I, I I do think it's it's vitally important that we keep educating ourselves and keep expanding and growing as clinicians, so that so that we have more to offer to those individuals who, who need our help. And this is a desirability
2: thing that that needs to. Continue to grow in mental health, like because um, people don't want to to think of themselves needing anything uh, outside of like a fierce, you know, look or you know, you know, a cute party or whatever. That looks like a lot of times, people do not want to think about like there's something wrong. You know, I hate to use the wrong, but like other things need to be explored, right? Because some things have been put in these little box bags, like that Erica said, bag lady, and that you just been carrying them with you this whole time, but not opening those bags and not looking and, and dissecting and touching that stuff again. I even have things in my apartment like, when am I going to go through that box and get rid of that stuff? I have not used it in a long time, but I still, I don't know why I think that it's going to work for me today. when. We don't even use those, you know, that's why I don't have the earphones anymore. Cause I believe I threw them away. Cause I knew I didn't need them anymore, but here I needed them today. So I gotta figure <laughs> out, I gotta work on that. You know what I'm saying? But it's, it's that whole thing of, um, mental health being desirable to the people. Like, um, one, you know, I don't know if it's in the promotion of it or how, you know, I noticed that a lot more celebrities and people that people admire and influencers are talking about, um, you know, their engaging mental health. We had a program at my agency uh, last month, the Mental Health Awareness Month, where we invited influencers and celebrities. Specifically, we were asking those folks of color, right? Like API, African-American Laverne did it, Forrest Laverne Cox, uh, Margaret Cho did it, uh, Kelly Hugh, a lot, Lee Shane, like a lot of people outside of our, you know, our education, you know, brothers and sisters. We ask people of color to talk about their experience, how they're interacting with their mental health. Who are they, you know, having a conversation with? Are they in therapy? What, how do they feel about therapy? It, do you recommend it? You know, how do you access people that are culturally sensitive to what your needs and what you're desiring, you know, from therapy. It's like, like how do we keep making that look attractive to people wanting to like engage in, in, um, mental health that, that comes up.
0: One of the things that all three of you have touched upon in, in different ways is, uh, the, the lack of trust. Um, And we could spend hours just talking about that. Um, But that we're looking at systems that have been in place that have kept white people in power, and that have kept cisgender um, and straight people in in a position of comfort. And we talked a lot about that in our last podcast. Um, But this idea that there's a lack of trust. Like we know that people who have trauma are going to be suspicious of other people because they've learned not to trust. They've been taught through years of experience, either with their caregivers or with coaches, teachers, um, uh, bosses, loved ones, friends, whoever, that people can't be trusted. And then here we are as mental health professionals saying, "Hey, come into to my office." And trust me, open up to me, and that while while it can be a hurdle to get through, if we're cisgender and the other person is not, if we're straight and the other person is not, if we're not if we're white and the other person is not, the research also shows that that's not irrecoverable. But it requires for us as the dominant um, representatives of the dominant culture to. Be dissecting our contribution in the room and how our dominant conditioning can play out. Um, that yes, I, Jasmine, I think it is part of you know how do we how do we make this more attractive? And for each of us as clinicians, how do each of us connect with our dominant identities and acknowledge the limitations that we have because of that conditioning? Yes, I'm. I'm
1: jumping out of my seat to, <laughs> to to comment on this because I think one thing to add to what you said, Beth, so beautifully. Like I hope everyone like listens to that again, because um, I think when you don't understand your own the 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 resources you have within your own dominant identities and how you might be perpetuating that, um, if you if you even think, oh, um, I'm gonna approach this person or this client with a neutral. Neutral is already unsafe. You have to be actively affirming and finding ways to actively affirming. If you're neutral, that reads as unsafe because the dominant neutral, quote unquote, the dominant culture is unsafe. So you have to go out of your way to activate that. Um, And I just i just think that there 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 are levels of uh where someone feels safety and even thinking about trust i think you know my 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 brother told me one one time that trust is earned trust is earned so it's just instead of being like why aren't they trusting me <laughs> it's like how do you build and earn that trust over time and realize that you can't you can't approach it in the same way that you would approach a client who has dominant identities. You have to go out of your way. So I'm when I'm talking about affirming, how do you signal safety? What's your signage? What's your? Um, are you sharing your pronouns? Are 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 there signs that affirm that in your office? Are you signaling safety in all of these different ways that we can signal safety? Are you sharing? um reading are you are you uh, exploring the fact that hey i want to just acknowledge that we are two different lived experiences that alone right there would signal safety to me um so i just want to throw that out as like all the different ways that you can signal safety and how important it is to do so dr
0: sanchez you look like you had something you wanted to say i could see the wheels turning
3: yeah i'm i i just in question uh, are questioning my own practices. How do I signal safety to clients? What do I do to to show them that this is a safe, safe environment? And I, I think for me, it's really trying to letting the client be who they are and not putting expectations on them that they need to talk more or that they need to be different or share their deepest innermost thoughts with me that that will come in time and i have to be patient and i have to be on the the client's schedule to allow them to open up and to really be there for me and i i love what uh luna was saying in that you know there there could be other ways that i could create more safety and acknowledging our differences um, would be a way to create more safety so i i think i think we we can all learn from each other what works and um and and how to how to be better how to always be better clinicians and how to connect better to people.
0: Thank you for that reflection, Frank. Um, and that's something I've heard consistently in these conversations is the importance of all of us taking that time to step back and do that reflection. Um, and LaShonda Sugg, who I interviewed last week, said it really well, that our, our Uh, tendency is to want to push it down because it's uncomfortable or it's like, oh, I don't want to confront that thing about me like that, the way I move in the world and how I do this thing, that that's conditioned and that that's society that's allowed me basically to do that and how it's hurtful to others. And so we push it down and that in order for us to be changing this, every single one of us needs to have a really long hard look in the mirror again and again and again. And that that comes back to that whole concept, Luna, that you brought up, the difference between cultural competence and cultural humility. Um, We could spend so much more time talking about this. I am honored to have had even this time with the three of you to share your uh, personal and professional experiences of what it means to be a person of color who is also part of the LGBTQIA community. I would like to invite you, please tell us how folks can get in touch with you. Um, What is your website? What is your email address? LinkedIn, things like that. Um, Why don't we start with you, Jasmine? If people want to learn more about you and learn more about your work, how can they get in touch with you?
2: Oh, yeah, please. Uh, I am at Jasmine, J-E-Z-Z-N-U-N, the letter C at A-P-A-I-T org.
1: Thank you, Jasmine. And how about for you, Luna? Yeah, if you want to find out more about me and the work that I do, uh, you can go to soulbirdconsulting.info. That's soul, S-O-U-L, and then bird, B-I-R-D, and then consulting. And that's um, LLC.info. So just look it up. Look for souls and birds and Luna.
0: (laughs) Thank you. Thank you, Luna. And Dr. Sanchez, for people who want to get in touch with you, learn more about you.
3: Sure. If you'd uh, like to get in touch with me, my uh, web address is uh, drfranksanchez.com. And uh, I can be reached at uh, franksanchezlmft, licensed marriage and family therapist, um, at gmail.com.
0: Wonderful. Thank you to the three of you. I think these moments are opportunities for all of us to hear from different perspectives, and it can only serve to make us better as clinicians and better as humans. So, thank you for taking this time with me today. Thank you. Thank you. You've just finished listening to another exclusive continuing ed podcast by Clearly Clinical. If you like what you just heard and you need Continuing Ed credits, please visit us at clearlyclinical.com to check out our one-year membership, where you'll have access to our growing library of Continuing Ed podcast courses. Clearly Clinical, where our goal is to help you learn, grow, and shine.